Literature and Psychology by Dr. Saideh Malik Afzali, Dr. Daniel Rockers, and Dr. Alex Andrade from Tabana Organization. Tabana is a non-profit mental health organization organized in Sacramento, California. Tabana seeks to help individuals and families to strengthen their capabilities and to thrive. Aired on Saturdays and Sundays from 12 to 1 o'clock weekly. A very warm hello to our Radio Bomb listeners. Uh, this is Saideh Malik Afzali speaking. I'm sitting with Dr. Daniel Rockers and Dr. Alexandrodi. And we are going to talk about something that it's better to put it in the hands of Dr. Rockers so he can explain better because I may just miss something. So I want to have Dr. Rockers explain. What I am talking about here is something from my German heritage. It's probably, it's somewhat German heritage. It's Hungarian and Austrian and German heritage. And that is making strudel dough. So one of my hobbies that I was talking about earlier is baking. I like baking bread and making bread types of products. And I just get a lot of satisfaction from learning how to do that. So the one thing that I was doing last week when I was home visiting my mother in Kansas on the farm is we made strudel and we made the strudel dough. So an important part of strudel dough is stretching the dough out. And we've got a picture here of me. Well, tell me, what do you see, Saide, when you see that picture? What does it look like to you? Can you describe that? Yes, I thought you're putting something over the tablecloth and I couldn't figure what it is. Then I thought you have probably sew something, you have knitted something, and now you're stretching that knitted piece of cloth or fabric over your tablecloth. Honestly, that's all I could see. I didn't even know that's a do. This is amazing. Okay. Alex, what about you? Do you have anything to add to that, how to describe that picture for our listeners? There is a striking young man who is uh, preparing some dough, uh, which, uh, and I can only, I, I think I, I assumed it was dough because I do see a rolling pin on the table. And so I was thinking, okay, you're either getting ready to prepare dough and you're putting a tablecloth down, or that's actually the dough, because it's amazing that the dough is stretched over nearly half of a, looks like a six to eight feet uh, long table, probably five feet, four and a half feet, five, right. it's over, it's over half of the table and without any noticeable tears or rips even too, uh, it's, it's hugging to the edges of the table without any, any, yeah, any visual tears or rips. And so uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating, actually. Uh, I'm assuming that that's something you did uh, or you, you've had to learn to master because I would I would have so many holes and tears in that yeah. thing. Yeah, that is what you're seeing there. That part you're seeing that I'm stretching a piece of dough that was when I when I made it, it's smaller than a softball or maybe about the size of a softball. Wow. And what you do is you can see in that I've got 
the backs of my hands are under that sheet of dough. And what the picture looks like there is just what Alex and Saide described, where the dough has been stretched out so thinly that it's translucent. You can see through it. You can see the pattern of the tablecloth through it. And that's what that is about. Essentially, that is one big sheet of gluten. You build up the gluten by kneading the dough the day before. And then the next day, you take it out of the fridge and you begin stretching it on the backs of your hands, only with your knuckles. That dough is so thin that if you use any of your fingertips, you will poke a hole right through it. And sometimes you'll tear a hole in it anyway if you try to stretch it too fast. But I really, I get a lot out of doing that because it's a part of my heritage. I feel it's a part of my heritage. And I like working with dough and baking. It has, it teaches me patience and also persistence with a process. I know that the first time I start to make something like that, it's probably not going to turn out perfectly or skillfully. Mm -hmm. But with persistence and with patience, I know that things will come around. So I really like that. And that's a way that I feel I've used my cultural heritage as a as not just a growth process in myself, but also it's a it's an identity piece. And it's very enjoyable. It's pretty cool. We made uh, strudel dough. Jan and I made strudel yesterday. And we made a cabbage strudel and also an apple strudel filling. I am so amazed, Dan. This is amazing. Honestly, people need to know this is more like a mosquito's uh, net. And, and honestly, when I looked at the picture, even though you had said something, I totally forgot what you said. I thought you are pressing some sort of piece of fabric like a mosquito's uh, net over your tablecloth. This is so amazing. It can be a show so people can stand there and watch you doing this. And I think we should seriously do that. If, if you can promise, sometimes when people are around and you can do it and everybody can watch, I know it's hard under pressure, but this is one of the amazing things. There's no way I can even imagine from a softball you are making this. And did you get it to the end of the table? I did not take it to the end of the table. And I'm still learning how to do this. You can see on the front edge there, that lip of the thicker dough, it was stretching out. And I think with a little bit of practice, I get it over the whole table. That is amazing. And then uh, explain what do you do with it? This is going to be uh, the, the, sort of like a dolma, like things that you wrap around and you put stuff in it, right? You could do it like, um, what is it, spanakopita, like the yeah. Greek, you know, what the things that are made with phyllo dough, some people say phyllo dough. Yeah, 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 yeah. Things that are made with that, you can do that. Generally, the traditional strudel made with this dough what you do is you brush the surface of it with butter mm -hmm. and then you spread a filling across the end of that table and then roll that up and it becomes one long roll. So you can see it be like about a four foot long roll. Mm. And then we cut that into three pieces and then bake that in the ovens. But the net result is that 
you have many very, very, very fine layers of dough that become um, yeah. very, very tender. Mm-hmm. That when you bite through it, you just break right through it and yeah. you have all the whatever tasty filling you put in there. There's some candies or I mean, not candies, uh, sorry, pastry, the very fine pastry that in part of Iran I've seen, which I love. And it's uh, seems like the end product I've seen uh, is different, but it seems like what you do. Uh, some of the very fine pastry, that's how they make baklava. That's how they make those um, pastries from different parts. Uh, that is very delicate, very tasty. And probably I'm imagining that's how they, they do the dough to make those layers. And then when you really get it, it's a uh, only maybe one and a half centimeter at the end but it has so many layers even within that one or two centimeters um, pastry that is so delicate, but it has layers. And you can, when they're cooked, they're so crispy, you can take the layers and um, separate them. Right, right. And that's part of the function of the butter in yeah. when you put the butter over the whole thing. This is a similar, it's similar in principle to what is called puff pastry, which is also multiple dough, butter, dough, butter layers. But the process of making this is different than the process of making puff pastry. That's an interesting demonstration for us. What's that? Would you uh, do a demonstration for us one of the days? Oh, sure. We can do that. That would be a fun program to do. I I facilitate a physician's group every month. And last week we did, we made strudel dough. So I brought brought the dough that I had made the night before. And so they all had took turns stretching it and having fun with that. Oh, That's so nice. And we can have a live show when you're doing this. We can do that. That would be awesome. I, I still am amazed of how, because I've tried to make a bread uh, and I learned during COVID um, several times uh, to make um, different types of uh, bread. And I know how hard it is to even stretch the dough, especially for someone who's new to it. And now when I see this tiny um, net, pretty much I can call it net, Mm-hmm. It's amazing that, as Alex said, you haven't torn that apart by pulling it. Do you do it step by step to separate it and move it? Um, That's the patient's part of it. You get you get that dough across both knuckles. You hold your fists and you make sure you always have the backs of your hands up. And you can see in that picture, you can see my knuckles there and uh-huh. how it's stretching. So you start off by that and let that let that dough droop over your hands and then eventually just beginning to pull your hands apart very gently and just go all the way around it and you keep doing it. Wow. I wish our listeners could see this amazing picture Uh, and I like to describe it again. It's more like mosquito net. It's that tiny and that's that delicate. And imagine a, a dough as big as the softball, all of a sudden with the patience and with time, you move it so 
uh, delicately that it doesn't have a hole in it and you end up with four feet of dough. This is really a piece of art to me. It's, it is pretty cool. It's like I said, it's a lot of fun learning. I enjoy the learning aspect of that. Yeah. I like doing the baking things where you develop a skill. And how much your mind is focused. I think this is great for people who want to meditate. I was just going to say, that is, that is a very good point because it is, you need to be all there when you're doing that because it is so delicate. Yeah. So beautiful. Um, So um, is this a special dough or can it be any kind of dough? Well, it's a, it needs to be a dough that has the gluten built up in it. Oh, okay. And different recipes will say there's different flours you need to use, but a lot of ways. Alex, did you have something? Yeah, actually, uh, maybe we can save it for after the break. Uh, it's a little bit about, I mean, I was hearing what you got from that, but I find a lot of times when we connect to our, our roots or, or things about our culture, the older generation tends to value and appreciate that too, uh, to see some of that culture kind of passed on in that way. So maybe after the break, uh, if uh, that's something that you know we can kind of share a little bit about what's it like for you, but then also too, you know, what you think it might be or what you maybe seen it was like for family to know that you're doing that or to help you in that learning. Because I think that's one of the things that really speaks to people uh, that, 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 that our culture is not just something that is going to kind of die with us, or it's something that the younger generation is losing, but instead that they're gaining that. Um, I know for myself, just briefly, uh, one of the things I, I wished uh, that uh, I was able to, to learn uh, how to make was uh, homemade tortillas uh, uh, from my grandmother uh, who passed away uh, before I was able to have that opportunity to learn. I think in hindsight, I look back and, and wish to be able to have had that uh, and to be able to carry that on in that way. So I think it is something for the older generation. Uh, it, we know it does something for us, and I think it does something for the older generation as well. Uh, this is, as you said, Alex, um, I appreciate speci- specifically mentioning that this is uh, moving from um, Dan's um, parents' generation to Dan. And I can imagine if Dan's mom, for example, watches Dan to do this, how she would feel that she could be able to pass this on to Dan. So uh, with that, we're going to give a break and come back to continue our conversation. I'm still amazed of seeing that picture. And I wish everybody who's listening to us could have seen this. شنوندگان عزیز رادیو بامداد من سعیده ملک افسلی هستم به همراه دو تن از همکاران و دوستانم دکتر راکرز و دکتر اندرادی امروز در خدمتون هستیم و به زبان انگلیسی روزهای شنبه و شنبه از ساعت 12 تا 1 بعد از ظهر در مورد مسائل فرهنگی و روانشناسی صحبت می کنیم امروز صحبتمون راجب دکتر راکرز بود که یک دو نون رو که به اندازه یه توپ سافبال یه ذره بزرگتر از توپ بین توپ بسکت و توپ شدم کچکتر اگه کسایی که سافبال بلد باشن میدونن یه همچین توپی رو فکر کنین دو هستش دو برابر مثلا دو, دو سه برابر توپ تنیس بعد اینو باز کردن روی میز حدود مثلا شیش فیتی 
و اینو همینجوری آروم آروم با این سرای پنجه هاشون اینو باز کردن تو این عکسی که به ما نشون دادن و مثل یه پشه بند اینقدر نازک اینو کشیدن و درستش کردن این قسمتی از فرهنگ بود که ما داشتیم راجبه صحبت میکردیم که چجوری از یه نسلی به نسلی دیگه چیزها رو یاد میگیریم برمیگردیم دنباله صحبتمون رو ادامه میدیم Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, this is Saide Malik Afzali speaking. Uh, so far, we've been talking um, about um, a picture that Dr. Rockers showed us, and I still wish everyone could have seen it. It's a, a beautiful picture of a doe that Dr. Rockers has um, learned from his parents, and especially, I think, his mom, and how to make uh, a very delicate doe. And, and to compare this dough to something that you can imagine what it is, it's more like a mosquito net. It's that delicate that was uh, for uh, about the size of a softball, that dough um, and all of a sudden was um, stretched over a table and then ended up with about four feet of that delicate uh, dough. Um, and then um, Dr. Rockers was explaining how he learned to do that and it needs a lot of patience. And then uh, she, he also works with some of the medical field. Um, and then when they come together as part of meditating, being having patience, being at the moment, forgetting about all other things, um, he sometimes does activities that engages um, people to focus and and to me, it's a great meditation. And so we continue our conversation about part of um, culture that we learn from our parents. And uh, Dr. Andrade was saying, I wish I had learned to make something um, from what he, he loves. So I'll just have him continue with that. Yeah. And the, the Dr. Rockers type question that I was asking was, what do you think that uh, the the older generation or the generation uh, that uh, sees the continuation of 
those cooking practices even being passed down and, and you could share your own experience, Daniel, or just even think in general, what, you know, that might give somebody. And I'm happy to share what I think that might be even with my own family and within my own culture too. In general, I think that it is definitely a source of pride for the older generation to see the younger generation taking that up. I think there's some, somehow that's a nice connection piece and it's to know that they've passed something on. What is probably most interesting about this is that this was lost somewhere up the chain. I didn't actually learn it from my mother and I'm not, I don't even know if my grandmother did it. Oh, I looked it up in books and I said, hey, let me try to do this and let me see if I can figure this out. A few years ago, though, I, we, I did it with my mother and my mother is a very good baker. And in fact, with the county extension service, she taught a lot of these master foods classes and judges at the local county fairs, judges, breads, that sort of thing. But it was great fun for her to try it and for me to try it and to begin learning in that way. It brings up a very interesting piece, I think, that a lot of times pieces of our culture can be easily lost. And in some ways, it doesn't mean that they're completely gone for us. We can still pick it back up and help it become part of our own identity or, or, and or our own growth. For Germans, a lot of Germans, my mom talks about how during the Second World War and after that, it was not cool to be German. And so they did not speak German and that language part got lost. That was a lost piece right. of culture. And it was because people had so much fear of that and they didn't want to anybody who was German, he didn't speak German, he didn't let other people know you were German. Even names too, right, Daniel? It wasn't that people would even like change your names and uh, alter that to some degree? Yeah. In fact, they, that happens up somewhere up the chain in my heritage as well. People change the names because some of them were associated with Nazism. <laughs> You know, there was a teacher okay. when I started working um, for the district, when we were studying bilingual education, and we had a very uh, intensive courses of bilingual education, um, going to different um, conferences, um, having groups of people working together. And I never forget and I even to this day remember her name. That was beginning of my career um, as an educator. She actually stood up and she, um, there were about 40 people and she stood up and she said, my parents were German and they were whispering when they were talking to each other. So they didn't want us kids to even learn German. And she said, I uh, fully remember that sometimes quietly whispering, they were talking to each other. And when we asked what they're saying, they just said, it's just something between us. And we're just, it, it, so she said it was a secret language between them and they wouldn't even let us know what, um, you know, why they don't let us even learn it. And then she also shared that along the way, as they were now grown, um, I can't remember which of the parents, but one um, had a stroke and lost 
their second language, that was English, and they could only speak German. And she said, um, and the reason she was sharing this, it was the value of teaching our kids our own language and, and what happened to some of the people that they didn't even teach their children the language. So she said, we had to look around to find a translator and hire a German person who could be with us and, and with either mom or dad so that we could understand what she says. And she was crying when she was saying that. And she said that was how sad it was and how at that point we realized how much we have missed by not learning our language and, and how devastating for us was to find someone who was between our closest person in life that we couldn't anymore understand that person. So that was a very sad story, but also a lot of teaching involved that why at certain point in our history, we, did, we weren't allowed to speak the language that we should have been proud of. Right, right. It's a very interesting. What a great story. Yeah. Alex, That's actually, more well, to well, well, yeah, I was just going to say it's very common, actually, where I hear that, uh, where the person will lose their second language and then uh, even revert uh, kind of near death to their um, their first language in that way. And so, and again, I think it just speaks to how ingrained culture and, and a part of our culture, such as language, is uh, with us in that way. I did want to go back to the uh, the food that you mentioned, uh, kind of making and creating. Yeah, I, I think it's just so fascinating. We, we never know where we're going to get that from. And sometimes it's not always directly from our parents. Uh, I've seen even sometimes, uh, like you said, people getting reconnected with their culture and, and introducing that to their parents and to other family members in that way. And so it can be really powerful. It could be something that 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 gives to the family as a whole that, you know, we lost this in that way. And these are some of the ways that we're wanting to, to reconnect it. And as we talked about uh, on a previous episode, it's that integration or acculturation, if you will, of, you know, how we're doing that now. Uh, there's like a different spin that you could put on that. Uh, I, I'm thinking of like food that my grandmother used to make. And I think I might've shared on the, the air before with you guys. It was this kind of mixture of uh, American, Irish, and Mexican, where for St. Patrick's Day, you know, she'd make corned beef and cabbage, but we would have it with Mexican rice and tortillas and beans. And so it was one of those things where it's like the food was integrated into, you know, our culture uh, you know, now in that way, that's, that's what served us. And we didn't feel like anything was lost in that way, but it, it did allow us to feel kind of connected to the American Irish culture, as well as our Mexican, you know, Latino culture in that way. So I, I think it can be one of those things where now if I eat corned beef and cabbage, it's weird if I don't have Mexican rice with it. It's almost like, Hey, where's the rice, you know? And so people are like, what? Like, this is corned beef and cabbage. Why do you want rice with it? It's like, well, that's what it's become for us in that way. Interesting. It's part of your culture now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's what I mentioned previously. Culture is always, it's fluid. It's always evolving. It's always growing in that way within our family. And then it can spread in that way too. 
And then the change in food, because I was just thinking sometimes there are pieces of um, ingredients that you can't find uh, maybe in another culture where, where you are. That happens to a lot of immigrants that uh, there are some ingredients in their food that they can find it. And then they look for something similar. So all of a sudden that food ingredient is changed and other people eat it and they go, oh, it tastes really good. And some people even like it more. And all of a sudden that food is changed. The taste is a little changed, the ingredient is changed, but the original thought was the same as what they used to make. And this has happened here. And I know there are some specific foods here that um, people make it differently. And they go, this time I wanted to try with artichoke and see how it tastes because artichoke is similar to this and that, that we used to have in our food. And now I'm putting it and then you taste it and you go, wow, this is great. I'm going to try it next time. So that's how things change and other people learn. And then um, all of a sudden, a food that you knew, it's now different, but still, you know, you, you're still trying to make it, you know? It's all part of the growth process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's always great that we talk about successes and, and positive things, but, you know, I, I'm just going to introduce a little bit of failure, if you will. So, I want to say I commend you, Daniel, on, uh, you know, again, the photo, and it looks like the success that you've achieved. I, on the other hand, and I may have shared this with you before, I I tried one time, I'll be honest, haphazardly to help uh, my mother, a bunch of people got together to help make tamales. Uh, And so tamales are a very common food in the the Mexican culture, a lot of times around the holidays. Um, But it's this, um, I guess, cornmeal. Yeah. We call it masa. It's cornmeal. And so what you do is you spread it out over a corn husk and then you put uh, pre-cooked meat and different things in it. And that's one of the big debates. Everybody always says real tamales don't have this, or, you know, it's like you, you put, you know, sweet things in it. It's like, Oh, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Anyway, we, we do it a lot with, I think it's pork, maybe chicken, not too sure. I didn't get that far, obviously. So uh, the spreading of the masa on on the corn husk, you would think, okay, pretty straightforward. You know, it's like spreading, you know, jam on bread, right? No, not at all. I was trying to figure this stuff out. I and you're supposed to go with like the grain or something. I don't. Again, I don't know. I failed horribly, but I was trying to spread it on the husk, and I good two, three minutes of trying to figure this out. And it was tearing, it wasn't spreading. And again, it's one of these things where I've seen family do it so quickly with ease. I remember my grandmother doing it and just kind of like not even, you know, talking while she did it, not even thinking about it. I see my mother do it with great ease. As soon as I, after two or three minutes failed horribly, I was like, you know what? Do you need me to run errands? I could run to the store and pick up some stuff. You know, do we need anything? Like I, I could, ha- I could do that. I'm skilled at that. I can walk <laughs> in the grocery store, collect the items, purchase them, and re- bring them back to the house. That's a very, it's on my CV. Okay, my resume. I'm skilled at that. But to do the corn husk, oh my, it was so difficult, so challenging. So originally, I was excited about it because I was like, oh, that'd be great to be able to learn how to do that. 
you know, being able to feel, you know, talking with family as we're doing it. Uh, I, I completely gave up and, and failed in that way. Maybe, maybe as I'm saying this out loud, maybe I need to try again and practice a little bit more, but yeah, it was just, it, it was a lot harder than it looked. So again, I commend you, Daniel, uh, you know, that, that photo looks like it's probably after some, you know, maybe challenges, but uh, it's a, a photo of success, ride the wave. Uh, I think that's great. Yeah. I want to go yeah. back to what Alex was saying. Um, you know, sometimes you don't have the patient. And I think not having a patient probably underneath, you're not that interested. Because if you really are interested, it would be like Dan who tries and tries and tries, like the do thing that you were saying. Something in you is interested in baking. Is it because of your mom who was always baking? It just goes back to your childhood. Something um, definitely has been triggered um, by your childhood that you're so interested and you tried so many times and you finally could do it. And I was just thinking how lovely it is to be specialized in, for example, creating such a dough that not many people, even people who are bakers, maybe they don't do as delicate as that dough. Right. What, Alex, what the picture you haven't seen and was, <laughs> was never taken was this was a few years back. I had prepared a cabbage bacon filling. I stretched the dough out over this like four foot round table, which was even less than what you're seeing there. And the holes were starting to tear in it. And I was beginning to get irritated. I got the filling onto the dough and before I was ready, before I rolled it up, I stepped just a little bit wrong and caught the tablecloth and the whole thing went on the floor. No. All the dough, all the filling right mm. on the floor and it was done. Wow. So there have been a number of, uh, of challenges. So see, like done. if I had done that, I wouldn't ever touch it, but look at you. You did it again and you made it. I'm serious. You know, um, my goal for this year, and I said this a few months ago to Jan, I said, well, one of my goals for this year was to be able to make strudel dough confidently mm -hmm. so that, you know, if I wanted to have serve it for some family gathering or something tomorrow, I know, okay, I just need to do this tonight. And then tomorrow morning, I'll be stretching the dough and we'll be doing this. So I wanted to have that confidence of ability to do it. That, that's really encouraging, Daniel. I, I think in hearing that, I'm going to set a goal for myself. I'm going to strive to eat those strudels that you make confidently. That's, that's my goal. That's uh, my goal. Me, <laughs> that's as far as I can go. Okay. I'm not, I don't know if I want to touch tamales again, but I can confidently say, I'm going to eat yours with some skill, with some. Set, you're setting up some big challenge there, Alex. You better, uh, you might want to think about the size of the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Before we go to breakdown, I want to ask you, do you put anything in this dough, this strudel dough? Or, you? Well, what I mean is like raspberry jam or uh, strawberry jam, or is it meat or do you, is it a oh. part of food or dessert? So you can put whatever you want into it. Oh. Traditionally, it is 
the most well-known traditional filling is apple strudel, apple. Oh, right, right, right. And but then there are lots of other fruits that people have put in. So traditionally, the most well-known are desserts that are fruit-based, but it is less well-known, but also very common to put in other savory fillings. Like I said, we made a, a cabbage and bacon, mm-hmm. cabbage, bacon, cheese, onion filling that we put in there so could be either one either kind all right we got to another break we come back and we continue our conversation regarding part of the culture um, which was cooking or baking or following the tradition of the family شنوندگان عزیز رادیو بامداد من سعید ملک افزالی هستم به همراه همکارانم در شرکت توانا تا کنون ما پادکست های زیادی از این صحبت های خودمونی و کجوالمون در رادیو بامداد داریم و در سپاریفای یا آیتون میتونین ما رو دنبال کنین اگه به رادیو بامداد میرین و به سایت رادیو بامداد میرین قسمت پادکست ها رو کلک کنین در اونجا اگه برین زیر کالچر اند سایکولوژی ما تا کنون شاید حدود 180 پادکست داریم در تاپیک های مختلف که میتونین اونها رو در زمان های مناسب گوش بدین اگر کسانی هستن که میتونن به زبان انگلیسی بهتر برنامه روانشناسی و فرهنگی رو بفهمن و دوست داشته باشن خواهش میکنم ازشون دعوت کنین به برنامه ما روزهای شنبه و شنبه از ساعت دوازده که بعد از ظهر پوش بدن و برمیگردیم دنباله صحبتمون رو ادامه میدیم We're back with Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, and we continue our conversation regarding part of the culture. And if you haven't been listening to us so far and you just turned on your radio, beginning of the show, Dr. Rockers showed us a picture of himself uh, trying to do a strudel um, dough. Um, and uh, it was very, very interesting looking at that. and uh, picturing how delicate this work is and how careful you need to be not to break it, not to make holes in a very delicate dough. And that was our full conversation regarding patience, regarding um, how meditating it is, how perseverance we need to do be if we want to do something and be good at it. And Dr. Brockers uh, has shown this in many ways that how Uh, patience he is and how uh, a good listener he is and how he always uh, is uh, persistent in things he wants to be good at and do. So with that, we started talking about different 
parts of the culture, uh, me and Dr. Andrade talking about how terrible we are when we don't do something well and then we give up. So all of that, and now we are back and we uh, end our show with the last part of our conversation. Here's my question for you, Alex. And it's not really to put you on the spot, but- I don't, I don't mind, put me there, center stage. Let's go, Daniel. Go it. All right, so here's the question. You described the tamale making incident what did you learn from that or what did you take from that? That's my question. I don't, I wouldn't. And, and the reason I bring that up is because I, you called it a failure and myself, I really work hard not to say, well, it's not really a failure. Maybe I learned a little something from that. And this goes back to an, uh, 20, 30 years ago, probably when I was learning to make puff pastry dough and I really pretty much lost my cool doing that. And that was a great demonstration of no patience and feeling like total failure. So I had to reorient my, uh, my view towards things that really probably was the beginning of my true baking career. Anyway, but what did you learn from that? You must've learned some things from it. Yeah. I appreciate that you called it an incident because yeah, that's probably a, a very accurate description of it in that way. I think one of the biggest things that I took away from that is I I kind of took it for granted of what that process entailed. Uh, I, I know that a lot of times when even just the foods I do know how to cook, like there is so much preparation and so much work that goes into that. And it has to be done right. I think a great example is Mexican rice. So it's one of those things where you can say like, oh, it's easy enough to make. But what I found is it was something that I struggled for years to learn how to make correctly until my mom finally gave me some pointers that allowed it to come out almost perfectly each and every single time. And so I've, I've struggled to like, I, I, I would always like just kind of fool with the recipe just a little bit to try to get it to come out right. And each time it just, something was a little off, something wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. And so I think when I was doing the tamales, I just assumed kind of one of the parts that seemed the easiest, you know, spreading, you know, masa. I'm like, okay, I'm a pretty intelligent uh, adult individual who can spread jam on a piece of bread. You know, I can put butter on toast, you know, like I can do that, you know, but it was this, this corn husk that did me in where it wasn't as easy and it wasn't something that I just assumed would be just a, a non-thought in that way. So it, it really gave me that appreciation of, look, look, there's so much that's gone into this. And even that idea of, you know, just how skilled family members had become over the years in doing that. I think going back to the homemade tortillas, you know, that's something where my grandmother seemed to do that with ease. It, it's something I didn't ever hear her hesitate or struggle with or seem that it didn't, you know, come out perfect each and every single time. So I think it's there's there's so much skill that's uh, in that that it, it's something that you can really kind of recognize as you're saying for yourself. There's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be some some growth that comes with that. Absolutely. And and it, yeah and, it, and it, yeah and I was just going to say too. It also how much that really allows you to feel connected with your culture in that way too. I did. That was something else I felt. I was like, oh, I can't even make tamales right. Like I can't even do that, you know? And so it did feel like, ooh, like that thing that I would hope 
that would be a little bit easier given, not even given that I'm Mexican, but just that it's a part of my culture. And I've seen it done so many times and I, uh, you know, enjoy that food. Like that would be something that, that, you know, should be secondhand almost in that way, just because it's, it's so commonplace, but realizing, wait, no, it's, it's not as easy. It is something that has to be built and uh, is, is strongly connected with my culture. Yeah. And it's, uh, I was just going to say, Alex, anything you get good at, you have to do over and over and over. There's a saying in our culture of say, uh, that means if you want to be good at something, you have to do it more and more. It's, it's just the skills that you build. And it's very true because now when I cook myself, I don't even think what I need to add or what spices or it just automatically you do, you don't measure, you just do it. And I remember um, I had a couple of teachers coming to our house um, about 10, 15 years ago. And I told them, I said, I apologize because I only have some um, meatloaf and rice and that's all I have, but we can share And I remember one of the teachers said, did you make this yourself? This is amazing. I have never been able to make that. And I thought, what is she talking about? This is just so simple. This is the easiest thing I do. And I put it together very quickly. And I was apologizing for not doing something very special. And this is just something simple. And then when she said that, um, it, it just all of a sudden told me that, gosh, sometimes we do things that other people don't and they think is a big thing. And uh, we don't realize that for so many people, like, for example, for and, and Dan doing all these um, other things that he does, um, you know, we've seen him doing all these jams or, um, you know, other um produces that you cut and you put yeah i mean all of these that you do and for me the first time i saw i go wow you know how could he do all of these with the busy life and everything but i guess it's just become so habitual and easy when you do something and it just becomes part of you without even thinking but maybe when we see it we go wow how did you do that but for you was like yeah I mean, it's easy. (laughs) Sorry, I don't have anything more to offer. (laughs) Well, I think an important lesson that I learned, I referenced that my own incident some 30 years ago of making puff pastry and what I came to, this was a very important learning for me. One of the most important in my life, really. And that is, it has to do with patience and acceptance of myself. But the first few times I try a new recipe, and I'm talking like a baking, a skill-based baking type of recipe. The first few times I make a recipe, that product is slated for the trash can. And what it means is I take any pressure off myself that I'm going to produce some some end product the first several times I make it. So I, I just see it as it's practice. I'm learning. If something would turn out, hey, that's great. That's a bonus. But I'm not holding myself to that. It's just, no, well, I'm learning. It's a learning process here. So I think that's... For our listeners, Dan, to, um, you know, just be patient to learn, you know, because we can learn the first time. 
it's a it's a great lesson. I think it's a great lesson for our listeners and for one of our hosts. Let's not point him out. Okay. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm the one. <laughs> All right. All right. We won't put him out. <laughs> no, we all need to learn this. Um, obviously, it seems like Alex and I more need to learn that, that don't get disappointed when the product doesn't come out okay the first time. Keep doing it. Because I also get impatient when something doesn't come right. I feel like, oh, I'm not good at that. So let's just give it up. But it's a good lesson for all of us not to give up uh, if you want to become good at something or um, get the result. You have to be persistent and try again and again. Yeah, it's like that uh, Persian saying that you talked about, the Farsi saying. Yeah. You need to do it often to become good at it. That's very cool. That's yeah. very cool. Talking about Mexican food, which I guess most of us just love. As you said, Alex, you would just think, oh, it's easy. You just cook the rice, you just cook the beans, but everything has a special recipe and a specific way to bring it up to that taste. And that was a good point too. And how do we do that? By probably growing up with it. So you, you know the taste, um, because if you just pick up something from the recipe, you're not sure if this is the original taste or not. But if you have tried it in a home of original people that they make it, for example, I just personally love Mexican food, especially tacos and those hard shell. Who, who doesn't? Um, I always say if somebody doesn't like Mexican yeah, food, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what's wrong with you. I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. Mexican but food is delicious. Say, um, when I was in El Paso, Texas, um, and I lived there, I went to school there um, in, in high school. I remember, um, so there, there's always uh, um, the homemade stuff. And then if you went to a store to get um, tamales or tacos or uh, fritos or all this uh, special Mexican food, there was always someone who said, you know what, if you want the original food, you have to eat it at home. It's so different. And it's pretty much true in many ways. Uh, the homemade things are different. Is it because of the better ingredients or is it because they make it differently? Well, I think it's mass produced when you buy it in the store. Yeah, they just want to produce it. Yeah. So they don't pay that much attention to detail. Yeah, they, yeah their interest is just cranking out stuff. If you look at some of the things that are in grocery stores, like pastries or some of the cakes, they're not of the same quality that somebody who really works at at a craftsman at home works at doing it. They're not at that level. Yeah. I think a lot of times kind of along the lines of being mass produced, there becomes a, an acceptance of kind of like, this is, you know, a type of, you know, Mexican food. I, I think the best example that comes to my mind is like pizza, like real good, you know, a pizza is not what you find in the frozen, you know, section of the store. So, I mean, I think there's like a range in that way where if you're wanting more authentic, uh, you know, really like homemade style, 
you're maybe having to go to instead of the grocery store, a restaurant, or even better, somebody's grandmother. I always say if somebody, uh, whenever I like a, a restaurant and it's really good, I always say, you know, whose grandma's in the back? Like somebody's grandma's in the back because, you know, somebody's grandma probably knows how to cook better than anybody else in that way. Sometimes grandpas, uh, my, my, my dad, he cooks pretty good too. So uh, yeah, you know, sometimes it's grandpas that cook well too, but uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you gotta get moved closer to home, closer to the family unit to, to get quality. I think. I think an extreme example of that, Alex is macaroni and cheese. Oh, oh. Oh, a lot of people think macaroni and cheese is craft macaroni and cheese out of a box. Yeah. I found a recipe for macaroni and cheese that is, I thought, the best I've ever had. It has ham and mushrooms and sauteed oh. onions and three different kinds of cheese. It is very delicious. That, as I understand, as I got looked more into it, it's one of the few things that I will cook, you know, that I like the baking more. I want a recipe done. It's very good. I love macaroni, but I uh, like uh, the good one. Yeah, you might have seen my face, Daniel. Like, I do not like mac and cheese in the box. And like, so it makes it like kind of adverse to eat any mac and cheese. But I have had, you know, yeah. some mac and cheese that is really good and delicious. But for a long time, I would not eat it at all because it was just like... I don't like the the one that comes to people's mind, and that's what I experienced. Uh, so it's it's some one of those aversions I've had to work towards and and to kind of get over in that way. It's uh, similar to kebab because kebab is a Persian food, and it's uh, many places in Middle East are good at kebab, like Turkey, all the Middle Eastern countries, uh, many places, but. People who know what is a good kebab, by the first bite, they can say, this is good or this is not good. You have to be very, very specialized to make a good kebab. And that the tenderness, the taste, everything, the right amount of um, being on the fire, you know what I mean? It's It's just everything is very specific. With that, we got to the end of our program. And we want to just say our end ending statements. I will start off and I would say an important lesson is learning patience, patience with the process. For me, that was the most important, one of the most important lessons I've ever learned. And that is the same as that, the Persian or Farsi saying that if you want to get good at something, you must do it a lot of times and don't hold yourself to super high standard the first time you do it. I would encourage listeners, uh, you know, given that sometimes family members have passed on or maybe family members themselves haven't learned some of those things, really take advantage of, uh, you know, the internet in that way. There's so many things that you can access on the internet in regards to learning kind of traditional, authentic ways. And I think that could be something, a great a way to, you know, connect with family even too. So, you know, if, you know, you could get with your siblings or other family members, even parents to say, let's, let's try this, let's learn this in this way where it could be that experience of, you know, trial and error, if you will, of uh, getting better at that, as well as even connecting with our own culture and our family in that way. So yeah, it could definitely be something where just because that's lost doesn't mean it has to stay lost. 
And I want to say cooking and baking is an art and it's within each of us. We have to just activate that talent. Um, and it's just about the interest. If you have interest, you will have, um, you have the talent for it. You have to just uh, reach out to people who are good at making something or baking something, learn and be persistent, um, try and don't be afraid. And again, as Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade said, um, it's part of the culture. If you want to uh, keep it alive, uh, learn from grandparents, from parents or from people who are good at it and just uh, do it over and over in order to get good at it, then it becomes very easy. With that, I want to thank my friends, Dr. Rocker, um, Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade. And we come back next week to um, have another um, cultural or psychological conversation. Have a wonderful week ahead.
از کجاییم باور آمد که گرد سر بر نگردد سر گرچه سرد و سخت زیباست موج این دریا گرد و سر گذاشت سر لشکر غم را به بر فلک سخی نمانده این زمانه هر بزن تا بیکرانه سرنوشت را باید از سرنوشت شاید این با بهتر رود سر بر نگردد سر نبه بسیمی از سر نبه بسیمی از سر نبه رادیو بامداد صدای ما و شما با زبانی آشنا